This morning we're looking at Philippians chapter 4. It's on page 1166 in your church Bible, if you're using that. And this passage we're looking at, uh, Philippians 4, uh, 1 through 4, begins with the word therefore. It's drawing out the implications of what has come before. And so I'm actually going to back up and read from 3.20 onward so we can get the larger context. What's he drawing out the, the implications of? So Philippians 3.20 through 4.4 on page 1166 in the Pew Bible. Hey, Jesse, this door keeps blowing open. I, I thought I got it closed, but maybe you can do better than I did. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Uh, I suppose I'm the only one who's seeing that and getting annoyed by it. But <laughs> Philippians 3.20 uh, through 4.4. 4. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is God's word. In the passage that we looked at last week and I read the tail end of, Paul ended by reminding Christians that their citizenship is not in Philippi or Rome or America or Canada, but their citizenship is in heaven. Their ultimate allegiance is to God's kingdom, not to any earthly kingdom or nation. And so heavenly citizens are called to live in hope and patience waiting for their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will both transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body and who will renew all things as they are united under his rule. If you're here today and you don't have this hope, you're not a citizen of heaven, uh, I'm afraid our passage that we're looking at is not really on how to become a citizen, but rather how to live if you are a citizen of heaven. And hopefully it's still edifying for you, good for you to hear what Christians are called to live like as you're considering uh, the claims of Christianity. Uh, and so I'm just going to make this brief comment. There's no elaborate citizenship test. There's no fees. You don't have to wait in line at a government office. If you would like to become a citizen of heaven, there is one straightforward but searching and costly question. Who is your king? If you submit to King Jesus, if you swear fealty to him, then you are a citizen of heaven. Heaven, his kingdom, becomes your homeland. It's as simple as that. Submit to King Jesus, become a citizen of heaven. Now, if your citizenship is in heaven, if, as Paul puts it in, in, in 3 verse 9, you've been found in him, you have right standing before God through trusting in Christ's finished work. If you're waiting with patience 
and hope for his return and his renewal of all things, how do you live in the in-between time? What do you do in the meanwhile? That's the question Paul's looking at here in chapter 4. This morning, we're going to see he gives us three instructions. Each one, it's a corporate instruction. It's plural. It's for the whole church. Stand firm in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Each of these three commands, it's in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 4, end with that little phrase, in the Lord. And it's easy even to skip over that little phrase, to not notice it. And yet, once you notice it, you see that the theme of this passage as a whole, in a sense, is life in the Lord. How are Christians who have been united to Christ, who are in him through the Holy Spirit, to live in the here and now? By standing firm, by agreeing, by rejoicing. First, we stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. That's what Paul says in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Of course, what stands out in this verse is the elaborate way that Paul addresses the church. He oftentimes will call Christians brothers, and which refers to men and women equally. So you see our pew Bible has that little note, brothers and sisters. It's an inclusive term in Greek. But you see here, Paul adds the possessive, my brothers and sisters. He emphasizes his, his familial bond to fellow believers. And that family attitude is spelled out. Paul loves them and longs for them. That's a word that can even mean homesick. That's what Epaphroditus, uh, uh, he longs for his home church at Philippi. He's homesick for them. Indeed, Paul says he finds joy in fellowship with other Christians, with the Philippians. And picking up that racing metaphor from last week, he sees the church in Philippi as his victory crown. It's going to be his, his crown, his glory on the last day. What's going on here? Is, is the Philippian church a real standout church, like the one church that's got everything figured out, and that's why Paul is so positive about them? Well, Paul does seem to have a a particular fondness for this little church in Philippi. But more fundamentally, as Paul finds himself in Christ, his affections are being transformed and renewed so that he learns to love what Christ loves. Christ loves his people, and so he gave his life for his people. And Paul, as he's being renewed in Christ, finds his affections likewise transformed. He now loves Christ's people as Christ himself does. And so it is to be with us. If Christ lives in us, if we live in him, our affections should be being renewed and transformed so that when we look at our fellow believers, when we look down the pew, we don't see people who annoy us with their little habits. We don't see people we disagree with, but we see people whom we love and rejoice to spend time with. But this warm address is is all introducing Paul's first instruction. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. Verse 1 then brings to a conclusion this major section of the letter. Uh, 127, if you flip back a page, you can see Paul said there at the beginning of this section, instructing the Philippians how to live, only let your life, uh, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And now as 
as Paul gets near the end of the letter, he, he reiterates that same instruction. He comes back to it. Stand firm. Uh, so it's, it's bookends of this whole section. We can get a sense of what it means to stand firm in Christ by reflecting from just a moment on what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say advance in Christ, march on in Christ. Uh, he doesn't say capture territory in Christ, something like that. Any of those would fundamentally misunderstand our situation, where we are in the history of God's work. In his death, in his apparent defeat, Christ has already won the victory. Sin, death, the powers of Satan have all been defeated. The victory has been won. There's no need to advance. Our task is to stand firm in the victory Christ has won. At the same time, Paul doesn't say, uh, hang in there until it gets tough and then you can retreat. He says, stand firm. Draw a line in the sand, thus far and no further. The 20th century French Christian law professor Jacques Ellul observes, we Christians are caught between two necessities that form an unresolvable tension. On one hand, we cannot make this world less sinful on the other, we cannot accept it as it is. To reject either side is to reject the actual situation in which God has placed those whom he sends into the world. It is an infinitely painful position. It is very uncomfortable, but it is the only one that can be fruitful and faithful for the Christian's action and presence in the world. We stand firm in a situation that puts us in the middle of irresolvable tension. We are in the midst of a sinful world, and yet we can't just say, that's the way things are, oh well. We're caught in this tension, and if we try to relieve either side of that tension, we actually go against Paul's instruction to stand firm. We try to relieve the tension by withdrawing from the world into a commune of sorts, or, or compromising with the world, saying, you know what, actually we can go with you, or Christianizing the world. If only we have enough Christians in office, then this tension will be gone. At least that's what we tell ourselves. And yet these are all ways of rejecting the actual situation that God has put us in. We are called to stand firm, and this means living in the middle of you know, unresolvable, uncomfortable tension with the world. To be in the world, but not of it. Think of the images Jesus uses for his followers in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. These are pictures of tension. Salt and light emphasize a radical difference between Christians and non-Christians. Uh, the difference is literally night and day, light and darkness. And yet this radical difference isn't expressed in opposition, at least from the side of Christians. Salt brings out the flavor of meat. It preserves meat from decay. That's how it was used in the ancient world. And so Christians are called to stand firm in a situation of tension with the world in a way that preserves our culture from decay and brings out the flavor of our world. Light provides guidance and direction, and it shows darkness, the darkness of the dark by way of contrast. As salt and light, Christian followers are called to permeate their non-Christian society. Light penetrates the darkness while remaining light. Salt is rubbed into meat. That's how it preserves it. 
Paul actually uses similar imagery in Philippians 2 that we've already looked at. He says, We live as children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding the word of life. This isn't a social or political agenda. It's not a strategy. Rather, Paul calls Christians to stand firm in the Lord. In the Lord. It's about living in union with Christ. In the Lord. In the particular life situation where God has placed you. In Galatians 2.20, Paul describes union with Christ in this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In Philippians, Paul describes union with Christ as being found in him, as being made citizens of heaven. Although we continue to live as uh, expatriates here on earth for the time being. And so standing firm in Christ means Christ living in and through you in the midst of irresolvable, uncomfortable tensions of life, in the midst of a world that's opposed to Christ. Okay, make no mistake, in the Christian life, you will feel tensions between your faith on one hand, what you confess to be true, and your workplace, your family, your neighborhood, your culture on the other hand. That's not to say work, family, neighborhood, culture, our non-Christian world is all bad. Indeed, much about it is good. That's the point of salt, to bring out the good flavor of the food. And so Paul, uh, in a passage we're going to look at in two weeks, just a couple of verses down, he commends to us, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, wherever it comes from, think about those things. He's saying, be on the lookout. There's much good in the world around you. Draw out its flavor. But nevertheless, we stand firm in the midst of a world that is in fundamental tension with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We swear a fealty oath to a king that our world does not acknowledge. It's an irresolvable, uncomfortable tension. And if we're not feeling that tension, we need to check that we haven't adopted a sub-Christian strategy of withdrawing or compromising or trying to Christianize. At the same time, this instruction comes with reassurance. When you feel the tension in your workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood, nevertheless, you are in Christ Jesus. He is in you. And so you can stand firm. Moreover, Paul says this isn't a solo endeavor. He addresses this instruction plurally to the brothers and sisters. And yet, living in community also brings pain and uncomfortable situations. And so Paul goes on to address just such a situation with verses 2 and 3 and his instruction to agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. That's the second way we live out our union with Christ, is to agree in the Lord. If you read through the New Testament, Paul rarely addresses someone by name in the middle of a letter like this. Paul's letters uh, would have been read out loud in the midst of the church gathering. And so can you imagine showing up to church one Sunday and Paul's letter has arrived, Epaphroditus has brought it, it's being read out loud in the middle of the congregation and it's going great. You think, okay, you know, Philippians, this might be Paul's best work yet. It's so good. And then the reader gets to chapter 4 and he kind of stumbles and goes quiet for a minute before proceeding and awkwardly reading out your name out loud. 
and referencing a row you're having with someone else in church out loud in the middle of the sermon. Okay, uh, maybe you're a bit more thankful now that I don't use people's direct names and look right at you in the middle of a, a, a sermon, right? Uh, you can imagine how awkward and uncomfortable that would be. I entreat Euodia, I entreat Syntyche, agree in the Lord. Suddenly the room starts to get a little warm. And yet, although Paul mentions these two women by name, 20 centuries later, we hardly know anything about the situation. In verse 3, he says, They labored side by side with me in the gospel, their ministry co-workers. And so it seems reasonable to assume then that the, the d- disagreement between Euodia and Syntyche has something to do with their gospel ministry, their church work. Uh, could have been a disagreement over ministry plans as between Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15. Uh, it could have been hurtful words spoken carelessly that led to pain and ultimately to a split. Uh, we know both of those are commonplace in churches. Uh, disagreements about strategy, about what we should be doing, uh, careless words leading to pain and hurt. But notice how Paul responds to this situation. He uses the same t- term, entreat, uh, which uh, it's actually this, the verb form that we get the noun uh, in, in Jesus's uh, uh, final words in John uh, 15, 14, 15, 16, when he calls, says another comforter will come. The Holy Spirit is a comforter or advocate. That's the noun form. This is the verb form of that. It's uh, I entreat, I advocate, uh, but it, it kind of comfort is also rolled in there. It's hard to get all that in one English word, but he's saying, I'm coming alongside you and I'm encouraging you. I'm exhorting you. I'm entreating you to come together and agree in the Lord. Uh, but he uses the exact same phrase with both women. There's absolutely no way to guess who Paul might have thought was more right and more wrong. And that's just the point. What's our natural inclination when we hear about a disagreement? We want to hear the whole story and then figure out right away who's right and who's wrong. And before you know it, we're Team Euodia or Team Syntica, okay? We're on sides. And yet Paul's saying, no, that's not the way to go. That's actually indeed not the goal to figure out who's more right and who's more wrong. The goal is to agree in the Lord, to have our disagreements subordinated to the continuing work of the gospel. Now, we need to be careful here and use wisdom and discernment in applying Paul's teaching in the contemporary situation. Too often, churches and Christian ministries use for the sake of, a gospel, of the gospel as an excuse to mistreat volunteers or underpay employees. Essentially, they're using the Lord's name in vain when they do this. They're using Christ's name as a cover for manipulation and abuse. Now, we've already seen in this letter that at times Paul can take quite a strong tone. Uh, In chapter 2, 3, I guess 3, he calls uh, some people dogs and mutilators that he's opposed to, fellow Christians. So it seems really unlikely that if there's that sort of abuse and manipulation going on in this situation that Paul would have such a gentle tone. Uh, but also, and again, too often in the church, disagreements over doctrine or what part of doctrine we should emphasize or over our assumptions about how we should relate to the larger culture or uh, what the church culture should look like or what we prioritize in the church budget, on and on and on. All these things lead to disagreements and splits and divisions. And I think that's the sort of thing Paul is talking about here. In that context, his instruction is to agree, or more literally, to have a common mindset in the Lord, to think along the same lines together. 
We might say the ultimate reality of our common union with Christ should relativize differences in doctrine, church culture, emphases, priorities. Do you see how Paul ends in verse 3? These disagreeing women, along with Clement and other fellow workers, all have their names written in the book of life. Uh, That's not a phrase that Paul uses anywhere else in his letters. It's used a number of times in Revelation and in the Old Testament. But the idea or the picture is of God writing down the names of his elect in a book of life, those whom he's called to himself for his own purposes. What's Paul saying then? He's saying there's this disagreement Uh, between them, and yet fundamentally they are both called by God, set apart for God's own purposes. They're both united to Christ, and that fundamental theological reality uh, that we are united to Christ is more fundamental and more important than any sort of superficial uh, disagreement. Well, that's what to do if you're in the middle of an agreement, is to try and subordinate that to the work of the gospel. What do we do when we see disagreements in the church? Do you see Paul's uh, request there in verse 3? He says, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me. Uh, We don't know who this true companion is. Maybe it's Epaphroditus carrying the letter. Maybe it's Luke, who from the book of Acts seems to have stayed in Philippi, perhaps, at this point. Um, That's not really the point. The point is he's asking someone who he trusts, he calls his true companion, to come alongside these women and try and help them to reconcile. Again, we need wisdom and to be cautious. Much trouble has been caused by well-meaning people wading into situations they should have steered clear of. Okay, so pause for a moment, use wisdom, say, okay, am I actually making this better to get involved in this? But at the same time, there's this temptation to say, you know what, there's disagreement over there. I'm just going to stay above it all and ignore it. Or I'm going to keep my hands clean and pure by not engaging with these people that think differently than me. But Paul says, no, there's an important need for help, for wisely, carefully drawing disagreeing parties together and helping them to work through their differences to come together in agreement in the Lord. We can't just keep our hands clean by ignoring church conflict. We're called to agree in the Lord and to help those who disagree to find underlying unity in their union with Christ. Paul calls Christians to stand firm in the Lord, to agree in the Lord. And then in verse 4, he turns to a third way that we live in union with Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Verse 4 is like a hinge in Paul's argument here. And so it introduces a set of concrete practices that help us to rejoice in the Lord. So we're actually going to come back to verse 4 in a couple weeks. But also he uses this in the Lord Again, for the third time in four verses here, it's clear that these are common practices that should characterize those who live in the Lord. And rightly so, rejoicing in the Lord gives shape to standing firm in the Lord and to agreeing in the Lord. The command to rejoice doesn't mean act happy, okay? Paul's whole letter is about joy even in the face of persecution and with a potential death sentence hanging over his head. Okay, to simply act happy in the face of being chained up in prison with a death sentence over your head would be absurd. Rather, rejoice means to celebrate, to take delight in the Lord, to find your joy in the Lord. And so to rejoice in the Lord is very close to worship. 
what we've already been doing this morning. So we stand firm in this situation of tension with the world by rejoicing in the Lord. We worship even in a hostile context. And as we worship, we find our firm footing in the Lord. It's amazing how often if you, if you sing a hymn on the way to work in the morning, how different it sets your day. Uh, or, or recall to mind the words of a hymn maybe in the midst of difficult situation in your neighborhood. We agree in the Lord by rejoicing in the Lord. Again, it's surprising how often doctrinal differences and the like melt into the background as we join together in worship. On paper, Reformed Christians, as our church is a Reformed church, disagree with Charles Wesley on a number of points that we would say are important. Okay, and we don't deny that they're important. And yet, if you go through our Trinity hymnal that's edited by the URC and the OPC and the PCA, these Reformed churches, it's got two dozen Wesley hymns as well as Lutheran hymns and Latin hymns, Bernard de Clairvaux, the Venerable Bede, Francis of Assisi, okay? When we come together to worship the Lord, we agree in our worship. We agree in the Lord by rejoicing in the Lord. But most fundamentally, rejoicing in the Lord is taking delight in his love and his delight for us. I'm reading a book by a man named Julian Hardyman called Jesus, Lover of My Soul. Uh, the title, incidentally, is taken from a Wesley hymn. In it, he uses a great illustration for this dynamic. Imagine you're getting ready to go out on a date, okay? You're getting ready in the bathroom, you're looking in the mirror, and you're looking for every possible pimple or gray hair, trying to get everything right. Uh, or if you're like me, you're in that sweet spot where both pimples and gray hair are a possibility, you're looking for it all, okay? Okay. Uh, you're, what do you do? You furrow your brow. You kind of scowl at yourself. You say, okay, where is this? is more gray hair than last week. Uh, you're, you're frowning even. It's hardly your best look. But then you go out on the date. You get to a restaurant or a coffee shop or wherever, and you see your date across the room. And what happens? You light up. Your eye twinkles. You break out in a big smile when you see your beloved. And everyone is more attractive when they're smiling. Okay, what's happened? It's not just that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but being be, beholding your beloved and being behold, beheld, uh, this is <laughs> seeing the person that you like, having them see you, in that act of seeing each other, you actually become more beautiful. It transforms the way you look. Literally, it makes you more beautiful. Now, take that image and apply it to your whole self, your inner life, your outer life. When we behold Jesus, the lover who gave his life to rescue us, we take delight in him. We rejoice in the Lord. We see him who loves us. And when we meditate on his love, we see his love. We behold it as it's shown on the cross. We are actually made more beautiful. Our souls smile, as it were, and our outer lives. It literally transforms us. And so we stand firm in the Lord, being united to the one who in losing his life won the great victory and put, uh, put to, uh, routed, put to, made them flee, uh, sorry, uh, turned away the powers of sin, death, the devil, all of it. It's defeated. He has won the victory. We agree in the Lord who unites all of the church in himself. And we rejoice in the Lord who loves us so much that he gave his own life for us who unites us to himself so that he can live in us. 
when we see that kind of love, we're transformed and we rejoice, we delight. Let us pray. Lord, in this passage set before us, we see both pain and glory. You have called us to stand firm in the midst of a world that does not acknowledge you as Lord, and that's an uncomfortable position to live in. And we can't get out of that position. We're stuck in tension if we're going to be faithful to you. You've called us to be part of a church that so often is marked by disagreements and conflicts. And yet, in the midst of that pain, you give us a way forward of finding our life hidden in you, of living in union with you. And even more than that, you give us great reason to rejoice, to delight in you. We ask that as we live in union with you, you would transform us, you would make us more beautiful inside and out. Lord, there are some here who hear this uh, description of the life of those who are citizens of heaven and it's attractive to them. Although it's also painful and, and perhaps seems costly, I ask that you would be at work in their hearts even now, leading them by your Holy Spirit to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, to swear fealty to you. Others of us, Lord, uh, have forgotten that we are called to stand firm. We've compromised in various ways. Challenge us. And then, Lord, help us to delight in you as we rejoice in the Lord. Amen.